Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our gospel reading comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus told them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you are the light that has come into the world, the light that will never be quenched, the light uh, in whose presence we see more clearly uh, who God is, who this, how this world is, who we are. And so we pray this morning that as we consider your word, as we consider this uh, story, that you would uh, grant us clarity, that we would see well, uh, that we would not just see, but that we would respond with our whole selves. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they would be acceptable in your sight. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was uh, 18, I worked as a ca- uh, camp counselor at a summer camp. Not one of those, uh, not a day camp, but like an overnight camp. And uh, so that meant that for six weeks over that summer, I was responsible for a bunch of boys aged kind of 5 to 13 or so. Uh, which meant that each week we get a new group of kids that we would have to convince as their parents drove away that we were now in charge and they should do what we said, right? Like, what could possibly go wrong? And, and of course, the most challenging time was always at night, right? Because there's something about being away from parents at bedtime that, well, it makes some kids energetic, let's just say. Uh, they just don't want to settle down. You know, it's just too exciting. So, so we had to figure out something that would make them obey us uh, and go to sleep. 
And, and that was always easiest, of course, with the, the little kids, the five and six-year-olds. I mean, we just made them run all day. Uh, they weren't allowed to walk anywhere. Everything was a race, which meant that by the time we got back to the, the uh, cabin at night, they had no choice but to go to sleep. Uh, but the older ones always seemed to, to kind of keep a little bit in reserve, keep a little energy in the tank, uh, seemingly, as far as I could tell, just so that they could torment us and each other well into the night. Uh, that, that's how it felt anyways. And so the boys' uh, cabin counselors came up with a plan, and it was this. At the beginning of each week, we would promise our, our, our kids that if everyone behaved at, at night, that on the last night of camp, we would have a giant pillow fight in the middle of the field by the cabins. Uh, it would be counselors versus kids, and then we would sleep under the stars. And, and you know, I'm sure that a campers versus counselors pillow fight might be outlawed right now. And, and come to think of it, I'm not sure it was strictly speaking allowed then either. Um, but it worked. So you can't argue with the results. Uh, this was a good promise and kids, kids responded to it. And so I, I have this distinct memory, though, of, of one particular night after we wailed on each other with pillows and uh, everyone was sufficiently exhausted. We were, we were spread out in our sleeping bags all over the basketball courts near our cabins, and I was trying to stay awake so that I could make sure that none of my little charges were running all over the place, that they were actually going to sleep. And as I lay there looking into the night sky, I saw the northern lights for the first time. Uh, you know, right at the top of the heavens, this, this like light just sort of started to spiral down. It was all, the, the whole sky was alive with different colors. It, it, it was all moving. It, it was breathtaking. And I was terrified. <laughs> Nobody had ever told me about this. I had no idea what was happening. I did not know what the northern lights were. I'm still not exactly sure what they are, but at least I know they exist now. That, then I thought the world was ending. I really did. I thought Jesus was coming back and we were in for it. And the only thing I could think to do was, you know, uh, close my eyes and bury my head in my sleeping bag and, and say my prayers and, and hope that we're all still here in the morning. You know, like, Jesus, if you're going to take any of these kids, take me too, so you don't have to, I don't have to explain this to their parents. It, it was pretty intense. I, I've learned recently, <laughs> not just about the Northern Lights, but I've learned this too, uh, that, that awe and fear are physiologically basically the same emotion, right? What, what happens in our bodies, whether we're overwhelmed with wonder and excitement or terror, is, is basically the same thing. It, it kind of makes sense, right, of, of why the Bible is always telling us to, to fear the Lord. You know, it's not that we're meant to be afraid of God in a sort of negative sense, but a, a reminder that in God's presence we're confronted with the one whose, whose beauty and wonder and power and glory are, are well beyond our understanding, and we should be appropriately awestruck. The glory of God should drop us to our knees. And, you know, I, I think about this night uh, back when I was 18, uh, often when I come across the story of the transfiguration. And the story, the story of Jesus' transfiguration is a weird story, right? Like, let's just admit that. The Bible commentators never seem to know exactly what to do with it. You know, there's lots of details that Mark gives but doesn't bother to explain. Um, one common response is to kind of explain the whole thing away, right? To tame it into submission with our superior reason. You know, stuff like this doesn't happen. We've never seen anything like this. People don't spontaneously shine like the sun, and people don't materialize out of thin air. So, 
So something else must be going on, right? Maybe St. Mark is just giving us this, this kind of image to help us think about who Jesus is. It's just a nice uh, metaphor or something, a little artistic license. But, you know, as much as I, I'm you know, culturally trained to be skeptical of things I cannot explain, I, I, I really do think the Bible is a lot more interesting if we allow that it points us towards the God who does things we don't expect. Right? The God who is so extravagant and untamable that in the moment we might not know whether to be terrified or awestruck. Right? This God does unexpected, uncontrollable things. And I think it's easy to give uh, Peter and others a hard time here, but I'm not sure it's fair. Now, on lots of occasions, I've made fun of Peter's quickness to try and get a handle on this situation that is well beyond his experience. You know, silly old Peter, always trying to control Jesus. He's awfully slow to learn these God things, isn't he? I mean, right before this section, he's just given Jesus a dressing down because uh, Jesus has been talking about how he's going to suffer and be crucified, and Peter didn't think that was a good idea at all. Well, that conversation didn't go very well. Jesus called him Satan and told him to get his head right, which doesn't, and I love this, doesn't stop him from offering his opinion on the mountain, bless his heart. Now, we'll just make some tents and we'll stay up here. It'll be great, Jesus, and it'll really take care of this whole crucifixion idea. I, I do think it's, it's funny and kind of typically human that uh, in his eagerness to get control, he, de- he really doesn't deal with what's in front of him. Right? Instead of marveling at what he's seeing, he decides he's going to solve a problem that doesn't even exist. He, he doesn't know what to say, so he says something. You know, he doesn't know what to do, so he comes up with a plan to do something, anything. Whatever will get this situation under control. If he had a sleeping bag, he'd probably have said his prayers and buried his head in it, but he didn't. Although, frankly, that might have been you know, the more appropriate response. Right? Mark may not give us a ton of details, but what he does tell us makes clear that we're meant to be seeing something that is is really beyond our expectations, right? Jesus becomes dazzlingly bright. His clothes shone like no one on earth could bleach them, like no one on earth could bleach them. People showing up out of thin air, a cloud comes out of nowhere to envelop them, a voice is speaking out of it. We're not much left with much of a story if we're only allowed to have what makes sense and can be controlled. But what seems to change things, and I think this is interesting, what seems to change things for the disciples is that they manage, even in their fear, to recognize the source of this unsettling weirdness. Right? It's, it's the divine voice that makes them look up from their cowering. That's what transforms terror into awe. The situation is no less astonishing, no less breathtaking, but once the voice speaks and the cloud clears, they're eager to look around and see what God is doing. And what do they see? Mark tells us that they, they look up, they look around, and they see Jesus alone. They saw Jesus alone. I, I think that line all by itself is probably worth some extended meditation. I think that's the line that Mark is driving at. That's the goal, right? To see Jesus alone. To see Jesus, the, the revelation uh, of everything that Moses and the prophets have been pointing towards. The, the light of heaven moved in and among us. If we want to know the wondrous things that God is up to in the world, Mark tells us to stop our frantic doing, to hear the divine voice, to look up and to see Jesus. And not just to see him, but to listen to him, <laughs> to do what he says. You know, I, I actually want to give, 
give Peter and James and John some credit here because as terrifying as it might be to see your best friend start glowing and people materialize out of thin air, I think it's at least as wondrously unsettling to know that what God is about in the world is who Jesus is. What Jesus does is what God does. How Jesus is is how God is. You know, where we ended our reading at verse 9 is a reminder of that, right? When Jesus is raised from the dead, it's a confirmation of who he is, that what he does is God's will and way for the world. It's a reminder that what God is up to in the world is unstoppable, even by death. It's a seal on the promise that God will get the world God wants, that the way and the way that we get in on it is the way of Jesus, which may drop us to our knees or have us running for the hills. <laughs> you know, the morning I sat down to write this sermon, I, I happened to read a quotation from Oswald Chambers, who's the author of a great daily devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. And, and he says this, he asks, why are we so terrified for God to speak to us? And he answers, it's because we know that when God speaks, we either must do what he asks or tell him we will not obey. We either must do what he asks or tell him we will not obey. Which is a real issue for us as Christians, right? It's the issue that I think is at the heart of this transfiguration story. I mean, sure, I think it's marvelous that we get a glimpse of Jesus' divinity within his humanity. I like divine pyrotechnics as much as the next guy. Moses and Elijah are a nice touch, but it all drives at this instruction to listen to what Jesus says to fix our eyes and our lives on him. Now, the transfiguration readies us for the serious business of following Jesus off the mountain, listening to him and doing what he says, watching him and doing what he does. And if that doesn't make us at least a little bit anxious, we probably haven't been paying attention to him. I know I'm a bit of a dog with a bone with the Sermon on the Mount these days, but if we want to know where the heart, uh, what the, the heart of what Jesus is about, then that is the place to start for me. I mean, true, it's a little less dazzling clothes and a little more dusty feet. It's, it's not everything. It's not the whole gospel. But it is the essence of what it looks like to walk in the way of Jesus. And it doesn't take us long to recognize that he's called us into a way of life that is rather different than what we learn in school or in our workplaces or sometimes even in church. He calls us to do impossible things like trust that it's the poor and the peaceable, the pure and the persecuted, the merciful and the meek and the, uh, the, the mourners who are the blessed ones. He calls us to refuse self-righteousness and anger and, and embrace forgiveness instead, to give with radical generosity, to love our enemies and to pray for our persecutors, to not worry about our pensions but about the kingdom of God and trust that everything else will follow. This is the stuff he says will lead us into the way of a life worth living. This is what it looks like to move in and with the grain of the universe, to embody what we pray for when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know, maybe it's because I've never seen anyone transfigured before, uh, but when the divine voice says, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him, that's the part that makes my hair such as it is, uh, stand up. But here's the thing. This is what we're told. That, that the difference between terror and awe, between fear and wonder, how this emotion manifests, 
is an awareness of the source of the thing in question. You know, if I, if I had known that the northern lights are the result of disturbances in the magnetosphere caused by solar wind, he says with the confidence of someone who looked it up on Wikipedia, uh, then I might have uh, been able to take in the glory that was spiraling across the heavens. It, it would have been overwhelming, but it would have been overwhelmingly beautiful. I can't help but think that that's why the voice from heaven actually seems to have calmed the disciples. Because they were suddenly deeply, unquestionably aware of just who was at work in all of this. The God who made all things with a word. The God who desires this world in all of its mess and marvel. Who seeks and saves the lost. Who abounds in steadfast love. Who is gracious and compassionate. Who makes good promises and keeps them. This is the one whose will and way stands with us in Jesus. So here's where I am at the end of the story this time. I want to be more and more with Peter and James and John, looking up to see Jesus alone. Eyes fixed on the one who has chosen to love us to the end and then through it, who promises to be with us always. I want to not exactly argue with Oswald Chambers, but I I want to invert what he says. I want to ask, why is it so amazing, so literally awesome, that God would speak to us, that Jesus would call us? It's astonishing because what is true is that God believes that we are sufficient to get in on what God has done and is doing in Jesus, even if it's scary. God is prepared to call us to work with him so that our prayers for the kingdom are not just wishful thinking, but the sure and certain hope by which we are freed in whatever we do to do it in the will and way of Jesus for the glory of God, which is the hope of this God-beloved world. Now, what Jesus calls us to is serious stuff. And when he calls us, we have a choice, either to go with him or not, and that's a serious choice. It could cost us things we're not eager to give up. Maybe stuff on the inside, you know, things like anger and greed and bitterness are often there for protection. Maybe it's things on the outside, status and possessions and our best laid plans. But the more time we we spend with him, the more time we spend in his company, the more we risk listening to him, the more we trust in his grace when we stumble, the less terrifying and the more wonderful life with him is. The more we recognize the glorious gift that we've been given, the extravagant, extraordinary love and grace of God for all things, the more we'll be ready to live our lives in wonder, love, and praise for all that he is to us and for us. And so my prayer heading into this week is that we will look and see Jesus, that clouds of doubt and fear would clear and we would see his face, that we will hear his call more clearly and we will listen, that we will catch a glimpse of the glory that both drops us to our knees and makes us live abundantly in the hope that is ours in him who has called us. So to God, who by the power at work in us is able to do abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, terrifyingly, wonderfully far more, to God be the glory in Christ Jesus and in the church and in our lives now and forever.